You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Here we go. Here we go. We're back in business, guys. Stock Coils, the X-Man podcast. Thank you for checking out the program. You know, I apologize. You know, I don't know. Is guys cool? Can I say that? I don't know if that's uh, too gendered, you know, trying to be sensitive, guys, trying to evolve, you know, be with the people, not be old school. I know some people probably mad that, hey, man, bring that PC shit up in here. This is a safe space. I don't know. I don't know. I care about everybody. You know, I just want, you know, I just want everyone to be happy, which I know you can't, you can't please all of the people all of the time, right? In media, it helps to be, you know, divisive. Well, not divisive, but, uh, you know, polarizing, right? That's, that works really well is to have one group of people who really love you and then other group of people that kind of hate you. It's uh, it is. It's true. You know, it's very, very, very helpful. Which probably well, I'll never probably be that popular. Unfortunately, a little too balanced. You know. Anyway, uh, I hope you guys are having a a great week. I just uh, my girlfriend and I fostered a dog today. You may have seen pictures on the social medias. It is a very, very cute dog, and seven weeks old, eight pounds. We don't have a name. It's a girl. We'll, we'll figure out a name next couple of days, but we'll figure it out. That's exciting. It's a little scary. I, I mean, I've never owned a dog myself as an adult. I've, I've lived in houses with dogs at times. So it's a big thing, guys. You know, it's big. You know, you're trying to grow up. I'm 40 years old. You know, you never know. But anyway, looking forward to it. At least, you know, it's like, you know, it's like anything. You do it, you do it for the likes, you know, babies and, and dogs just uh, like magnets. But, uh, one thing I just want to bring up, and, and, and we're, you know, you, you know, guys know I enjoy talking the politics, but I have a very trepidatious, I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> relationship with how I address it publicly in, in certain formats, you know, pretty much stopped talking about politics on Facebook because I don't really like arguing with people I know. I, I do think in that regard, ignorance is bliss. You know, I've had some uncle or an old friend that, believe, you know, it's just believe what you want. I'm, I'm not going to convince you. So what's the point, right? It's a, it's a poor 
mechanism for exchanging ideas. And then in some regards, I, I try to keep this podcast, you know, not too polarizing either. I really do. Even though there's a couple, there's a couple of reviews on, <laughs> on the iTunes, people calling me, you know, super liberal, which is, which is kind of funny because I, I, of course I lean left, but I do even, you know, in, in today's environment, I kind of see myself even more as a centrist as, as time goes on. And I, and I tell you, I argue just as much with uh, liberals as I do uh, conservatives. So but with that, of course, I, of course I do lean left and, you know, something's going on right now that I think bears speaking about despite the fact that it might polarize some people or, or, or bother some people. And I get it. Listen, if you're conservative, if you're Trump supporter, I don't, you know, I don't want to piss you off. I don't, I really don't care what you do, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel like it's my job to convince anyone of anything. And I really want this show to ultimately be about music and the music scene and creativity and doing things. But anyway, I, I, I think what's going on right now with the postal service is like, the most blatant kind of corrupt thing I've seen in my lifetime. And, you know, and I'm sure if you're listening, you probably know what's, know what's going on. There's been some new people installed at the post office and they're, they're get, getting rid of people. They're stopping overtime. They're removing mailboxes. Things are getting backed up. Uh, and it's all just out in the open, you know, Trump is essentially trying to get people to not vote by mail and disrupt the system a little bit. And, you know, some people I kind of, you know, I kind of clapped at Phil from all our mains about it because he, you know, he thinks it's kind of bullshit. And I just think he's flat out wrong. I love Phil. We disagree on a lot. We agree on a lot. But uh, this is one thing because I think what they, you know, there's this, there's this, this mindset of people like Phil who are, or, you know, who lean one way, but they're, they're kind of independent, you know? They don't really, they're, they're not sycophants for anyone where Trump, his, you know, as being, he is, he's the greatest troll of all time, you know, and I'll, I'll get, when he does certain things, well, I'll give him credit for it in that he's, he lives, you know, rent free in the heads of a lot of liberals all day, every day. He's the boogeyman, right? And I think I call it boy who cried Trump. Right. So if you hate Trump, he's the reason why you're <laughs> why your cereal soggy in the morning. You know, he's the reason why the, the shower is cold. And <laughs> he's, you know, what I'm saying he, he's 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 the reason for everything. Right. What they call Trump derangement syndrome, uh, which I think was I think that goes for every president. Really, people are deranged. Even people don't even make it. People even lose like Hillary. You know, think she. You know, this woman lost and, you, you know, you think she's, she's <laughs> involved in every bad thing that ever happened. But, um, but I think if you're, if you're, if you're someone who's pretty much independent and you see this one side who complains about everything, 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 it numbs you to the fact when he actually does do something that he deserves some severe criticism. And that's, that's, that's what I would put this category in is. Boy, you cried Trump. So it's like you're so numb. And what he does is he kind of floods you with stuff that's out of the norm and, and so off the wall that you just get used to it. And you're just like, ah, he's so silly. He's so because it, it's funny in, in, in politics, you know, 
for some reason you don't get, uh, or at least I, you know, when, when we're kind of judging these things, you don't get in trouble for the attempt, you know, it's like, yeah, Trump tried to get the Ukrainian president to dig up dirt on Joe Biden, but he wasn't successful. I'm like, you, I'm like, you do know attempted murder <laughs> is a crime <laughs> just because you're bad at murder doesn't mean you, you get off. And I would put that, that in this in that same category. Cause a lot of people are like, well, it's not really effective what he's doing, but you gotta understand the last election came down to 70,000 votes across three States. It doesn't take much. Right. And the, and the truth is, you know, if you look at that last Trump rally in Tulsa, it wasn't that well attended. You know, you had a 20,000 seat arena. I think like 5,000, 6,000 people showed up. And a lot of that, I think, just because a lot of people just didn't, weren't ready to go out in public. And I think that's a lot of the the whole issue with the whole male thing is, you know, he's blatantly, he, he doesn't, he was trying to discredit this process of people voting by mail. I vote in California. We get a ballot in the mail. You don't have to go in person. Last uh, during the primary, I just I filled my ballot out and then I dropped it off at the mailbox um, at the ballot box, excuse me, at the polling place, you know, but I could put that in the mail. I think there's five states in the in the country that have, you know, you pretty much primarily vote by mail. You know, I I did a, a notary online, right? I, I got a document notarized and you go and you go use your camera on your phone or on your computer, show them your ID. So if I can use an online notary, there's definitely processes that we can identify people's who they are and make sure that they're not cheating. And there's, there's no evidence that there's any cheating or if there is, it's very little, you know, um, and it's blatant. It's just blatant. He's like, I don't want people to vote by mail because the truth is the more people that vote, the likelier it is to lose. And that's really sad that, that there is, it, unfortunately it benefits one party because you know, older people tend to vote more conservative. Younger people tend to vote liberal, but young people don't really vote. They don't. And I don't think that much is going to change about this election. It really won't. Um, but I think we should all be for more people voting. I don't think that should be like a partisan thing. I don't think it should be left, right, you know? And I think we should all be for people not undermining things like the post office. You know, and people are like, oh, the post office. They lose money. Well, there was a bill passed 2006 that essentially said that the post office has to fund their retirement plan for 75 years. No other agency in the government has this requirement. They're trying to undo it, but that's why it's lost so much money. And the thing is that it's a service. It's not, you know, we don't think about, oh, we, you know, we don't say, the military lost a hundred billion dollars. No, we just said we spent a hundred million dollars on the military. And that's what it is. It's like the police department or education or any service that the government pays for. We are all happy that we can just put a letter in, spend our 50 cents, whatever the hell it's stamp costs, and it ends up halfway across the world. That's a cool thing. And it's been around pretty much since the country started. And I just don't know why everything has to be left, right, politicized. It's so dumb. You know, and unfortunately, like I said, this, this dude, like I said, I don't blame this motherfucker for everything. You know, I don't like him. I think 
His general essence is bad for our morale. It's a psychological drain. And just the lack of him being there will be a net gain. It does not mean things are going to be magically better once he is out of office, if he is out of office. It's not, you know, we're pretty broken psychologically across the board as a nation. And that's not going to go away. Division will continue. Um, and when I say division, I mean real, we don't like each other. I mean, let's just face the facts. It's a country. We don't like each other. And we're going to have to deal with that. And some people, there's this theory that these things go in like 50 year cycles between unrest and calm politically and socially, right? So right now we're about 50 years removed from that, from 1970. And what happened for that 1968? You know, you got RFK getting killed. You have Watergate, Vietnam War. It's a rough time. A lot of, lot, you know, crazy stuff uh, going on. Kent State, I can't remember what year that was. But so there's, so if that, if that theory is true, we're looking about another eight to 10 years of kind of rough times. And that kind of, if you'd see where we are now coming off this pandemic, which is going to cause, uh, we're dealing with great financial strain. And then you have the fact that we're kind of banging against each other's just everything, you know, with the racial strife and all that and left versus right, rural versus city, elite versus populist, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just going to be a rough stretch, but certain things, like I said, I don't like to make this, I think, you know, getting up on the soapbox to a certain degree, it's boring, you know, and I'll put it in places like an article where it's elective. You can just, you read it if you want, don't read it if you want Twitter. I put it on there because Twitter's like, you know, kind of throwing a, a message in a bottle in the ocean. You know, you can kind of even see it if you want, but it's not really dominating you. And, uh, and it is what it is. But I, I think this is really egregious. And listen, I think the Ukrainian shit was egregious. But he did, he did, at least he paid for it. He got, uh, he got impeached. He wasn't removed from office, but it's a blight on his record. And, uh, and this, the, certain things we just shouldn't be fucked with. And the fact that this dude just says it out in the public, like, yep, don't want people to do it. It's like, come on, man, we gotta have some standards. We gotta have some standards, and, and he can't just get away with it because he sucks at it, because he's bad at crime <laughs> it's like i get it he's incompetent and and the truth is yeah a lot of people can vote in in uh if laws are safe they can vote uh in person but you understand because of the pandemic lines are going to be longer because they're going to have to take temperatures and make sure people have masks and do all these things and clean the machines whatever they have to do and then you have to remember and this happened during the primaries in georgia where they closed down a lot of the normal polling sites. You had places where maybe there were 90 places you could vote. Now it's down to five places. So it's not just as easy as people say, oh, just go in person and vote. Because, you know, a lot of these places, especially poorer places, they get less resources, the lines down the down the street. And that's going to hinder people from voting. And that is voter suppression. And it's fucked up. So people should have that option if you need a way to verify people, figure that out. But, you know, public health matters. 
and voting matters. And we got to figure out a way to do it. I mean, it's funny because New Zealand just uh, pushed their election back, I think, three or four weeks. And it's funny, in, in a certain way, you're like, well, Trump wanted to push it back. What's the difference? Well, he is, he's lost credibility. He's proven he will do whatever it takes to win. Whatever it takes. Even if he's not effective at it. You know, but, but what he usually is effective at is destroying things credibility, making you lose trust in a, in a particular institution, or at least his people. And it's funny, this thing I think actually might hurt him because, like I said, conservatives tend to be older. So a lot of them might just say, um, you know, don't vote by mail. Uh, he said not to do it. So they may, maybe they might not vote. And then they go online. They're like, hell, I'm not going to wait outside and cold or whatever. Might hurt him. Who knows? I don't know. It's going to be a rough couple months, guys. But you know what? Let's stay strong. Let's stay with each other. And uh, that's all. pretty much all you can do. Well, I apologize for such a long diatribe. You know, so it's how it goes sometimes. Sometimes your boy, your boy's got some thoughts. Uh, hopefully, I can articulate in a way that wasn't too overbearing. But anyway, we do have a guest, a man named Ro Coley, a man I've known for a very long time. He used to work at Century Media Records, where I met him, and he was involved with my old band, God forbid, and did a ton of work for us. But he also worked at the street team uh, and the uh, touring. A department for Roadrunner Records currently has a company marketing and merchandise company called War Machine Marketing. I've they've been advertising on the show recently, so you probably have some familiarity with that. Maybe you've checked out his uh, his website and bought some stuff from which I hope so. But uh, yeah, you know, it's I love having old friends. I love having people involved in the industry to give you guys, you know, the, the musicians out there or, or people just interested in the industry and seeing how it works and seeing how it's evolving because a lot of what we do talk about is aspects that have evolved and changed. But, you know, that's still where you were definitely gives you an idea where you're going. And he's a Jersey boy, so I got I got to represent for my Jersey homie. So, you know, good friend. Really glad I could finally get him on the show. I think you guys will really enjoy this. My conversation with the awesome, humble and talented Ro Coley. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 Zero two 
Zero-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Roll Coley, thank, welcome to the X Man podcast. Thank you. It's been it's been a long time coming. Mm. Um, you know, this kind of is in keeping with you know a certain theme with with me, which is kind of reaching out to certain individuals who have been kind of key in my career. You know, formerly with with, with God forbid, and, right. and you know, and luckily with us, our relationship has sustained even even well well, well past that. But I think it's it's super important for me to kind of expose a lot of the audience, which is a lot of musicians and and people involved in the creative world who don't really know that much about the behind the scenes right. uh, part of the industry. But but it's so important to kind of you know I, I meet so many bands and they're just like I don't even know you know they're they're like, they don't they don't know where to start as far as like you know maybe they know how to make the music or a demo or get something, but then they kind of get get stuck but um we go all the way back to the central media days back in the early 2000s but you like you started out in the street team world? no actually i i started out in publicity because okay. uh, i started out and by the way we gotta say you're from jersey we're both from yeah, jersey we, so we got that connection we're you know? like literally a town apart middlesex county yeah middlesex <laughs> county baby that's right <laughs> The 908 or the 732 now, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, no, I so when I originally started, <clears throat> I, start, I started uh, when I was in college because I started a zine. Did you go to Rutgers? Uh, no, I went to Kane. Oh, yeah, that's I, where my dad went. Oh, I, I was like the one Indian guy who couldn't get into Rutgers. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, listen, we've, we've reached our max. Yeah, they were, yeah, even though they were like, and all these other 8 million Indian people can come in. But I mean, you've heard about yet. all that, all that like kind of Asian like discrimination where they're too good at. at Mathematics, we're not we're just academics in general. Right. So there's like a cap that they're putting on like these Ivy League schools. It's oh like, yeah, I can imagine. Well, especially with New Jersey, there's just so many. Like it's it's the the it, like especially the Indian population in New Jersey just like quadrupled out of nowhere. It's yeah, just crazy. Well, Ed, well, Edison that area. My, yeah. that's where my my grandparents lived, and um, you know, I'll say I I definitely heard a few um, you know, some Trumpian rhetoric rhetoric before. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah well my parents you know i'm from Metuchen, which is like right inside of edison so yeah. it's just yeah that whole area has just exploded but yeah when i went to kane i i mean there's a whole story on how i started my zine which is too long for this i think and this is like old school zine right yeah this is like what was i i think word perfect i think i was using i mean this is literally taping you know photos to the page and then photocopying them kind of thing so yeah so it was yeah it's definitely old school it's like word perfect um, literally, you know, taping a picture onto a page and then photocopying it kind of thing. Because back then there was no scanning. Scanning was so expensive. And then, so everything you did, you had to like burn it onto plates and all these kinds of, mm. it was just so insane. Like how, like just how primitive it kind of seems now. What's like, what genres and scenes were you in, in at that time? At that point, so what happened was I, when I started my zine, I, I, kind of was I, I was originally a business major in in, in uh, college and then I was like you know this business thing just seems stupid and once I discovered the zine I discovered you know just kind of the behind the scenes of of, of the record industry world because I was just your usual kid buying CDs buying tickets to concerts that kind of thing and then when I started the zine it was like suddenly this whole new world opened up for me and since I was dealing with publicists all the time I was like 
this seems like the type of thing I could do. Well, what, well, what kind of bands are you covering? Oh, I, was, I mean, at that point, it was kind of a little bit of everything because my first internship was at a place called Formula PR, and we did all the Nothing Records bands, so Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, Prick, all these kinds of bands, and like, Meet Me Manifesto. So it was kind of in this weird, like that was kind of like a weird um, sort of gray area. But I mean, I was mostly doing metal, you yeah. know, because that's what I that's what I am. I'm a metalhead. And so, and luckily Formula PR was right around the corner from Roadrunner. So it was easy to go there and do interviews and all these kinds of things. So all the bands I basically interviewed were usually metal bands mm-hmm. um, or just whoever I thought was kind of cool. You know, like, I mean, there was a band Rasputina. Um, oh, I remember that. Band. Yeah. So it's like, you know, Vaguely. <laughs> three, three women who were playing cello and it was dark and weird. And I was like, cool, man, like, let's just cover that. So, yeah, so I covered kind of across the spectrum. I mean, you know, I, I reviewed Alanis Morissette and I, you know, so I wanted it to be as open-ended as possible. I didn't want to paint myself in just like the metal category, but that was definitely the focus. I mean, were you making money? Were you giving oh, it no. away? How was it? I charged $2 for it, but it was like, it was basically the type of thing I just kind of handed out every yeah. once in a while. It was, it was really weird because I was always surprised at, that it got as far as it did because suddenly I just get envelopes in the mail with $2 and just be like, can you send me shock to the system? It was called shock to the system. And can you send me shock to the system number six? And I'll be like, okay, like that's weird. But yeah, I would just get envelopes full of money, you know, full of, full of <laughs> full pennies, of, full of dollars, 200 yeah. pennies. Yeah, exactly. Full of eight quarters. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, that was, it was just a $2 thing. Just, I, I knew I was going to give it away for the most part. You yeah. know, uh, most people didn't really want to pay for something they just didn't really know about. But if I could get $2 then I was, I was stoked about that. But. So was there, was that a means of something else or was it just like you were just wanted to be involved? Uh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be involved, but then as I started working with Nine Inch Nails and all these kinds of bands, and then eventually I, I sort of defected over to, to Roadrunner because that was definitely more my speed. Uh, around 96, 97, I was interning there. And then it just became like, that's when the whole Roadrunner thing really blew up for me because yeah. I just suddenly discovered 80 million bands that I just wasn't, that just weren't on my radar. I mean, how did you even get a, an internship there i mean i was doing interviews there so whenever somebody like machine head or somebody would come to the roadrunner offices for a press day it was easy for them to be like hey ro can you can you come and do an interview with rob flynn i'm like yeah sure just walk around the block and do a 40 minute interview and so i just kept getting to know the people there and seeing them at shows and everything and then eventually once formula started moving more towards electronica which wasn't really my thing um I went over to Rota. I was like, hey, do you guys need an intern? And they were like, yes, please. So that's when I started there. And I was working like OzFest 97 and VOD and. What kind of, I mean, were you, in terms of interning, were you, did they kind of plug you into that? end of things press and promo and or or do they kind of have you doing everything no no i was i was a press intern so i my job was to contact zines like myself uh weeklies dailies that kind of thing trying to get our bands just any kind of interviews or whatever with with the smaller ones while my bosses took care of you know the rolling stones and the bigger metal magazines so i was handling like all the college stuff and you know things of that nature and uh so at some point you start working with the street team side of things. When did you actually get hired officially? So basically the way it worked was um, in 98, I moved out to LA from Jersey and I I bounced around from so many different shitty jobs. You know, I was really hoping that somebody was going to help hook me up and everything like that. And it didn't really happen, but that's when Streetwise really kind of started 
the new era of street teaming, if you will, uh, with bands like System, System of a Down, Static X, Slipknot. You know, those were kind of like the first three that really sort of broke using because uh, the internet was very new as well. So it's like when you sent an email to somebody, it like went right to them. There was no junk mail and all that sort of stuff. So those bands did really well. And that's kind of when I started getting more ingrained in the street team kind of ideology, I guess you could say, because I was looking at it like, okay, there's something, there's something here. This is more my thing. And so when I left LA in 2000, in early 2000, I, I got a job immediately at Roadrunner. And uh, they hired me on as a tour coordinator. So I was doing all the touring aspect stuff via, you know, guest lists and things of that nature. And then about six months in, uh, you know, I was putting all these street teamers on guest lists. And I'm like, dude, I'm at all these shows. I don't see these kids anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, so to me, I was like, we're wasting our tickets that we could be using elsewhere. We're wasting our promo we can be using elsewhere. So I wrote Roadrunner a proposal saying, hey, I want to take over the street team. Mm -hmm. And they went, okay, great. And I said, great. And they go, you're going out on OzFest 2000. And I went, what? Because <laughs> I had never been on tour. I'd never even been on a moving tour bus yeah. at that point. So they just thrust me out into this insane new world that I just wasn't expecting. But it really helped because I got to meet all my street teamers on the tour and, and do meet and greets with them and talk to them and you know really show them how to do it. Well, so... Just from a um, kind of understanding standpoint, do it, it, I know what street teams are because I came up in that era. Right. If someone listening now who understands the way the music industry works now to a certain degree even know, do street teams even exist currently? I, I think they do. Just in the music industry, it it imploded. Yeah. Well, that can was, you, just in case someone doesn't know what sure. you mean, can you kind of just describe what a street team is sure so a street teamer is basically a fan of the band who wants to help actively promote the band in their area yeah whether it's with flyers or cd samplers or whatever kind of free promotional items that that record company is giving out on behalf of that band yeah. so we would send you know street teamer x you know in boston uh, you know a box of cd samplers and flyers or postcards and stickers and they would go to concerts and and events and hand that stuff out to people hoping to promote the bands even more mm -hmm. so that was basically and then they were all volunteers like i mean there's really no there were certain paid street team companies but for the most part the street team companies that were out there doing the metal stuff uh these were all volunteers you know so they got paid in concert tickets and you know cool items and things of that nature kind of like activist super fans yeah yeah that's a really good way to look at it yeah you know spreading the gospel of the bands that they like but just handing out yeah, Whatever and and you know, and just to provide a a little bit of kind of perspective and background, I remember you know, especially going to shows in in New York, it seemed like there was a lot of activity, kind of on that back end of the '90s, and in in for a lot of that kind of Roadrunner, new metal right. vibe, you would just see how much activity you you couldn't go to a show without getting handed a sampler right. or stickers. Or something. I mean, even I'd say, you know, by the time. So when I mean, not, not to get too ahead of ourselves, mm -hmm. but I remember when God forbid first came out, we had this sampler uh, tape with Candiria, for example. Right. That you know, even to this day, people tell me like, "Oh, I got that tape," and it like, you know, that's how I found out about you guys. And it, it was so there was so, something so kind of tactile, and you know, you know that 
kind of change right between right. the physical world and the digital world and we and we kind of saw that kind of manifest in, in real time but some some of these artists whether it was system of down or slipknot that street teams like made it fucking happen like is it can you were you there when um i heard that slipknot when they got their publishing advance they used a bunch of their own money and printed up sampler tapes for Ozvest? Is that uh, true? No, I highly doubt that. I mean, that would have definitely been a Roadrunner thing. So they would do that anyway. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so Roadrunner was, was doing that. And like I said, like Streetwise was brand new. So it was, and emailing was still fairly new. The internet was still, you know, kind of evolving. So it just, it, everything, it was kind of a perfect storm in a really weird way. You know, it's like you kind of got... You know, you got a cassette sample at a show, and then you went to this band's website, and then you signed up on their email list or their street team list, and then suddenly now you're getting emails telling you about all of these things. Mm -hmm. But it's not being cluttered with all this other spam mail junk, all that sort of stuff. You know, it was just everything was very targeted at that time because it, it could be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was really what it was: is that people really wanted to be a part of something. You know, you're in whatever, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, you know, the music industry is not exactly, you know, some burgeoning thing over there, but it was a way to allow you to still feel like you were connected to a band like System of a Down or a band like Slipknot, you know? And so then when these bands came to your town or came to your market, um, you know, you could be like, hey, dude, I'm, I'm the dude who works here. And they'd be like, great, thanks for your help. You know, and you, you know, as a street teamer, you'd be like, this is great. I get to hang out backstage and da, 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 you know. So they treated the street teamers a lot better than than just regular fans. Yeah, of course. But uh, but eventually it just started to get to a point where street teamers started to feel entitled, you know, like they're, you know, or they you know who I am. Yeah. Either that or like, you know, I work for Roadrunner Records and be like, oh, actually, you don't. <laughs> you don't do that, you know, or they would. uh Especially, I mean, this is not not to sound. I don't know. I don't want to offend anybody in this regard, but like you know, like girls would sign up, and it was just their easy access to be groupies. You know, yeah. like it was that kind of thing. Or um, people would sign up as a way to sell drugs to the band. You know, so yeah. there was there was just people who took a lot of advantage of it. I mean, was, do you think any of it went the other way in terms of perhaps maybe you know? Because I think you can kind of extrapolate with that in almost any type of interning like right where there's a lot of people and i'm and i'm kind of torn on this mm -hmm. you know who kind of feel interning in general is kind of inherently unethical you know uh right you know because it's in many ways interning is kind of uh you know the benefactors are going to be those who are privileged right it's people right. who can afford to not make money in the intern because maybe their parents support them or they can live at home whereas like if you're broke as a joke and you don't right you can't afford not to have any money coming in and it kind of tends to benefit those who already have advantages right. you know right and and it, and it leads to people taking advantage of those situations yeah. to better or to kind of help themselves out yeah. or even certain companies just kind of you know utilizing that as a way to kind of just get free labor and you know there's that too i don't know there's i i feel kind of both ways about it because i do think that I know so many people like yourself who started out interning and then led to right. a career. Right. You know, um, and I think there are, those benefits are there. But um, but I, I just wonder if maybe some of those elements kind of just came up in terms of 
maybe people feeling taken advantage of or things like that? You know, uh, if anything, I think in, in a lot of ways, because of the volume of street teamers out there, I think it, it was the, and, and this is going to sound really weird, but it's almost like the record companies sort of got taken advantage of in, mm-hmm. in their own way too, mm-hmm. because by allowing people, because a lot of the a lot of the street team companies had no vetting process. So how many people would, would a, a band or a label like how many would they have like across the country see that was that was see, that was always the weird question because there would always be this numbers game you know so so a place like streetwise would boast like we have eighty five thousand members and it's like okay but you have like 12 people working there like how do you control eighty five thousand people yeah that's not possible you know and then you have eighty five thousand people you send materials to exactly right? but how, they, how do you because i remember they would do things like they would maybe flyer or like hand, they would hang up flyers, but then they have to like take a picture and stuff right, like that to right. kind of show proof that they actually right. And and that's why like so for somebody like Streetwise, they'd have eight hundred people on a team. But again, if you have two people running a team or one person running a team, how do you control eight hundred people? Like that's yeah. that's almost impossible. So when I started my street team at Roadrunner, the Roadrunner Road Crew, um, we had something like twenty six thousand people, and I just remember starting and being like. How how am I supposed to do this? How this is impossible? No, me, did, was that just the U.S.? Was there a, 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 a European UK there kind was, of brand, There was, branch? but we never really communicated all that well because yeah. again, it was just such a, a a thing that was so constantly fluid and constantly evolving and changing. And that's one of my regrets. I will tell you that right now that I didn't um, confer with with my European counterparts. Well, just to kind of like trade strategy. Exactly. And- well, and and it was always weird too because Europe and Japan and places like that just got such better stuff than we did you know they were already on cd samplers when we were still diddling around with cassettes yeah you know but in the end i do understand that you know when you have somebody like you know roadrunner england it's like okay cool they make promo for england yeah they're not making promo for france they're not making promo for germany and it's so much more condensed exactly the uk is like right it's just not that big exactly in it's, it's kind of like the size of texas if you will yeah. you know and it's like if all i had to do is promote in texas yeah all my bands would be freaking multi-platinum <laughs> you know but it was like when you had when you were making when you were making promo for the US, it's like you had to make so much mm-hmm. just to even sort of get the point across in any way, shape, or form. So we had to take the cassette sampler route versus the CD sampler route just because it was so much. It was almost like printing up newspaper print, you know, yeah. as opposed to a regular. Cheap. Right. It was I just, wonder our tapes, I wonder if they're more expensive, way more expensive to print now because there's probably not oh, that many sure. places that do it. I'm sure. But, you know, people are still putting out cassettes. I think Lamb of God just put out they a cassette did. for their new record. Here's the thing I'm going to go on the record. All right. Cassettes were always garbage. The only thing that was cool about cassettes was that you could use them to to record things. Yes. Like getting, because you know, me, I would do the thing where I'd get like the Maxell, right. 90 minutes. 90 minutes, exactly. You know, and it was like, because Maxell was just like, that was the best. That, yeah, that you was know, quality. You want no Memorex bullshit. You need the Maxell, yeah. all right? That you spend a little more, you get, get more bang for your for buck. For sure. But just the idea about, uh, I remember uh, my brother and I taped Pantera, Great Southern Train Kill off of 89.5 WSU. They did a preview before the album came out and we recorded it and listened to it so much. That you wore it out? Well, we wore it out, but I guess we wore it out and listened so much that the pitch, it was actually slowed down (laughs) a little bit. So when we got the actual album, it freaked us out because you're it, like it's so fast. <laughs> well, not only fast, but it was just like it, the pitch was higher, right. and we're like, was, yeah, the we're quality like, sounded so much more incredible. That's fucked up, bro. But you know, we would we would we would do things like like that, right? I mean, that was that was the thing with cassettes. Also back then, it was you know it was easy to just record 
you know, two records, like one record on each side. And then just my Walkman had auto reverse. And that was like the saving grace for me when I'd ride my bicycle. Did you make mixtapes? Not really. I wasn't much because I didn't really have the patience for mixtapes. So I would just put like, you know, like I was a a huge Caius fan. So it's like I would just take their two records and just listen to them over and over and then just have multiple cassettes on me at once. So if I just was like, all right, cool, I'm not listening to that anymore. All right, cool, here's my Pantera Megadeth tape, you know, that kind of thing. So that's how I kind of learned a lot of like the deep cuts for a lot of records and stuff is just, you know, riding my bicycle, taking the train, all that sort of stuff. I'm just listening all the time, you know, but I was, I didn't really do the mixtape all that often. It just took too much time. I was, (laughs) I was, I I loved like, I thought I was tricking the game. I was like, oh man, I'm gonna put this metallic song into this testament song into this Sepultura song. Right. Anyway, I was I was I was very excited about that. Making metal's greatest hits. Hell yeah. Things. So cool. now you're actually I want to ask you about kind of touring yeah. and being on, on on Ozfest. I mean what did that experience kind of you know give you in terms of kind of under because I, I, I think there's this idea and at least it was for me it was it was very illuminating about New York, New Jersey, tri-state area, this thing, and then actually getting out into the country right. and seeing how how just wild <laughs> and yeah, different how, ever. It, yeah, it was... What was that experience like? That, that experience was so nuts. Um... Because I started, <laughs> I started technically. I started in Virginia for Ozfest, but then uh, they were like, "All right, no, start start at the Jersey one." And right from the get go, it was just ridiculous. Our our bus driver disappeared. We found out later he had a heart attack and had to go to the hospital. Oh my god! So like one of the production drivers had to drive the bus, and he didn't know how to drive a bus. So it was like being on the worst boat you've ever been on. <laughs> and that was my first night. Was like just like in my bunk just like praying to god this was gonna stop um but then once we i think it was probably after boston once we were about to go into canada and um you know it was that's when i really started to see kind of you know just how the inner workings of it was you know just between tour managing and all these kinds of things i hadn't really you know even though i dealt with tour managers being a tour coordinator i just never really had this idea of like what went on behind the scenes and it was just it really was i mean from the attitudes of the of the fans to just seeing the various mishaps that can happen along the way. I mean, we almost got arrested in Canada for weed, which is a crazy, crazy story. You know, like we were, me and the Soulfly crew were stuck in a cell for like eight hours waiting for them to figure out if they were going to full body cavity search us or what. Like it was just the, you know, so I'm sitting there and I was sick. I had the flu. So I was just kind of like in this NyQuil haze wondering like, does this happen to everybody? What's going on? You know? And so it was just, it was a lot of that, but it was just seeing, seeing the country was really, you know, that's when I really saw like how just how different the South is versus how different a place like Albuquerque is versus, you know, all these different things. Like we did a show in Pocatello, Idaho, which was like an off fest date. And like people drove there from like 16 hours away. Like it was incredible just to see, you know, these people who were just, and they were so excited to have a show. And then you realize being in Jersey, being in New York, how spoiled we were with how many shows. Like, oh, I can't believe they're only playing Philly, you know, like, and it's like, these guys are like, dude, I haven't seen a show since like 1984, you know? like That's what I love about Jersey because right between Philly and 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 New York. York. Right, and then if you have a weekend, go up to Rhode Island, go to Connecticut, you know, like that kind of thing. 
and that's that was you know i didn't i didn't realize just how spoiled i was in that regard you know so when i saw these kids and especially when i was in you know because we were supposed to do uh, meet and greets with the street teamers and and max and um that was when i really got to see just how each of these each of these what i call kids but you know each of these street teamers was just another version of me in a lot of ways you know metal saved them in certain ways and they would tell max like dude like roots saved my life when i was in the hospital and i was going through brain surgery you know like and you just hear all of these things and i was just like wow like these kids are all they're like my kids you know they're just all little versions of me that i felt like i had to take care of you know i had to cultivate these kids or else they could just turn into you know just I don't know, just, I didn't know what they would turn into, but I just wanted to be like, you know what, I want to at least help guide them in some way or something, you know? So, you know, like I'd have parents call me up and they'd be like, why does my kid not stop talking about something called the Brown Satan? What the hell is going on? (laughs) And I'd have to explain to parents like, okay, like here's where the nickname comes from. And what I'm trying to do is teach your kid a skill. I'm trying to teach them that it's not just about handing stuff out. It's about marketing. It's about spreading the word. It's about promotion, you know? And, And that's, that was my thing. It wasn't just about like, let me just leave a stack of, you know, flyers here or whatever it was. So that's that's kind of what touring really showed me. It showed me all of these kids have their own awesome, unique perspective on how metal affected them, how they got into it. And it wasn't, you know, so far from my own. And so touring really, really, I mean, kind of cracked my, cracked my head open as far as, you know, just really showing me not only the rest of the country, but just, you know, we went to Canada and stuff like that and just seeing how all of these people reacted to each other but reflected each other as well and and that was definitely really something else you know that was it really it really did it was that's why i was like any i I almost feel like everyone should tour at least once (laughs) you know even if even if music isn't even your thing it's almost like you should just go on tour and be a merch person for a week just to see how it is you know i'd say specifically i think if you're an artist manager to Mm. me some of the best managers either used to be artists or used to be kind of involved in that end of things and even people at labels because it lets you kind of know you know it's from the outside looking in it it probably looks like the band's just partying and having a great time and everything is is all you know uh you know it's a motley crew video right and especially when you're doing on a on a maybe a more independent or, or sm- smaller end you know it's it is a real grind and right. it, it breaks a lot of people down and a lot of people can't can't hack it so it gives you that you know well you have certain situations where maybe a manager will like actually actually i'll tell you this story. our old manager dave ciencio the rev he he went on tour with us in the uk when we d- we did this tour that was we were supposed to go on tour with opeth mm-hmm. things got screwed up we got kicked off the tour <laughs> And the flights were already booked or something, so they just like sent us to fucking UK to do like you know two weeks of dates. Right, and it was like, probably the worst tour we ever. did. I mean, just no one was showing up at the shows. Right. It was we were it was miserable. We were we we got these vans with no seats in them. We're like sleeping on gear and we're freezing and it's you know it's getting dark at three in the afternoon and we're just <laughs> right. depressed. You know, I mean, one of the days our show got canceled and we were like happy right (laughs) but our manager was with us the whole time and after that he had a completely new kind of respect and kind of or or i'd say this he had sympathy for like oh yeah yeah yeah." like you know it's kind of fucked up to like commission 
you know, these guys on some money when they're not making <laughs> Right. Or expect them to know what to do when there's nobody really guiding them. Yeah. And actually, it's funny that you say that because street teamers would come up to me and they'd be like, you know, the tour manager was a dick, man. But once I was out on tour, I was like, yo, you have no idea what that guy has probably been dealing with. Like, either they can't find the drummer or the promoter screwing them over or, you know, the merch didn't show. Like, it's like, so if a, if a tour manager seems like he's just being an asshole, like, cut them some slack you know and that was a big big deal when it came to uh kind of how i guided my street team too was like yo you got to understand that the lighting people the tour managers like everybody's kind of got their thing going on and no one they're not there to just cater to you even though you might be the big fish in the small seat like you, they're not there to cater to you so i would tell them i was like go up to them introduce yourself say hey if you need me for anything i'm ready to help but stay out of the way do your street team stuff and that's that you know and i think that taught a lot of my kids kind of a little bit more respect as far as like what these people are dealing with because you know when a show comes to you know whatever minneapolis let's just say you know for those people in minneapolis and minnesota or whatever you know that's their one show or that's that's their show they don't think about the fact that the band has to go to you know where chicago after that or kansas city you know they don't think about that they just think about it in their own sort of little world so if the tour manager is being a dick they're like tour manager is a dick and it's like no dude you have no idea what happened the day before well, i'll tell you what sometimes the tour manager and is sometimes just a, is it's the just tour, a fucking is a, dick sometimes the tour manager is a dick but i've gotten a, into it with with more more than a few who were, right who were just being dicks right exactly and i had tour managers that would fuck with my street teamers and just pretend to be a dick or just you know mm. you know make them feel weird or whatever and these kids are just like i don't know what to do and you know the tour manager's not nice and it's like well, that's, well I, i've noticed there's uh, when i've run into that situation a lot of times it's usually the either the band is cool and then sometimes tour managers or people in that position kind of they get off on kind of having power over other other people and uh or what some bands will do is the band is actually giving them the orders right and then the band will be like super like hey man everything's cool and then so they have it's like good cop bad cop right so they get to be the nice guy and they're like oh yeah that guy the tour manager but really the the actual he's only doing what they want him to do right or or i have tour managers that were really gruff you know that were just kind of gruff and rough around the edges and these kids had never been on a guest list before or anything like that and they're there for their first show trying to figure out what to do and this guy's like yeah yeah whatever get away from me kid you know and they're like i don't know what to do you know but it was that was that was kind of it. it was just teaching them you know how to how to how to understand all the sides of it you yeah. know that it wasn't just their one sort of myopic view of of the situation that there's a bigger situation going on and it not it doesn't have to surround you you know like you're not the you know the focal point of this whole thing so i think stuff like that was really what helped you know me understand touring and understand that you know in every town it's a little different and you know just shit happens so, so how much longer did you stay working at Roadrunner? I was there uh, till 03. Um, so like a total of five years between internship and everything like that. But I mean, the street team thing really, it, it was the street team. It was like, it was almost like the street team wars, you know, because you had Streetwise and Band Bitch and Loudside and Roadrunner. And By the I, way, I, Band I, Bitch, can we talk about that? Sure. Who we, the hell thought that was a good name for, who wants to sign up for that? Yeah, I want to be a band bitch. Yeah, it's funny. My my good friend John Nelson started that company, and I always felt the same way. I was just like, I was like, I I would not want to be a part of that. That's like that was kind of my thing. I just, I it's like it's like saying if like 
you know, because you have groupie, which is kind of has a really bad connotation. Oh, right. I feel like, oh, I'm a band-aid. But it was like, come guzzler. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's or, like. <laughs> right. Or just like, you're you're the band's bitch. Like, just do whatever I tell you to yeah. do kind of thing. And I, I, I never wanted that vibe. That's rough. And uh, I mean, he, but he, again, he was one of the top dudes at the time doing it, you know, before I was doing the Roadrunner thing. So that's why when I came up with the, the road crew, I was kind of like, you know, we're there before the show starts and we're there after the show ends. Just like, just like the crew is. So that was kind of where the name came from, you know. And I always wanted it to be, just you know, something and something that uh, that was not gender specific by any means either. You know, I didn't want to be like road crew guys or yeah. you know that kind of thing. You know, so road crew went for girls and guys alike, no matter what. So did you leave or did they kick you no, out? No, I, I left. I left because I I I felt the. The atmosphere at Roadrunner felt like it was changing, mm-hmm. and street teaming was, in my opinion, was kind of the redheaded stepchild. Like you always had radio, and you always had press, and you always had uh, 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 retail, but street teaming was always kind of this thing that was like, uh, you know, I, I always called it the kids' table, yeah. Because since I was dealing with the kids directly and everything like that, and it wasn't really in a, you know, it, it was almost like while everybody else was dealing with professionals, you know, retail chains and, you know, Rolling Stone and, and you know, WSOU or, or K-Rock or whatever it was, you know, it'd be like, oh, I'm dealing with Chad Davis, you know, like it, it, it just, it felt... You're like the janitor of Mark. That was kind of it. It was, it no, was no offense to any custodial custodial professionals right. out there. No, my my was, grandfather was a custodian, and, and it was like, but they, but I think they were also trying so hard to compete with the streetwises of the world and everything. So it was almost like they sort of gave me carte blanche. Mm. But then when I was like, okay, like, but we need to do this and this, and they'd be like, yeah, 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 okay, whatever, we can deal with that next yeah. year. And I'd be like, uh. and then it got to the point where, especially once, um, not not that I want to blame Nickelback by any stretch of the imagination, because it's not at all that but once they became extraordinarily successful and radio and what's your next single and all you know once that really started to hit i felt like the metal side of what we were doing of what my crew was about was slowly or quickly rather deteriorating you know it became it, it just felt like and then like it was funny because after i left then it was like you know we're signing trivium and we're signing this and, we're si- and i'm like what wait i was just there and not wait what <laughs> you know so i felt a little i felt a little kind of shoved aside and uh I, but i will say this one I, you know you try not to have regrets but i mean there are things that i kind of wish i had done differently i'd done better i wish i you know kind of stuck it out a little bit longer mm-hmm. you know and i think i would have been able to to at least make a little bit more of an impact but i i, I do feel like i left way prematurely because i have the position at century media before you left no no i actually went to streetwise first after after roadrunner because i thought that might be the next logical step uh was to work for kind of a bigger company and uh, streetwise was just uh, i better not badmouth people but wasn't this kind of this era kind of the beginning of the end of that style of marketing sort of um it really imploded around um 2006 is what i want to say yeah. because record labels were signing bands and then just throwing so much money at places like streetwise and whatnot i mean they were using entire marketing budgets on these bands and then when the band wouldn't sell or they like i said they weren't really vetting any of their street teamers so 
people were just getting tons of promo and not doing anything with it. Just sitting Just somewhere. literally sitting in their closets and whatnot, you know? And, you know, after something like OzFest, when you pay a lot of money to be on it, you pay a lot of money to promote on it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's kind of like, oh, and your band sold 40 records, you know? So sorry, we're going to drop you. But it's like, in the end, they gave up, they just paid all this money to all these people and never saw anything back and yeah. sort of took it out on the bands. Like, oh, well, obviously people just don't like you. Well, that, that, that period of time was essentially you had illegal downloading and stuff right really that was affect, starting to come in well, right? it, well it it had started to affect the other areas of the industry around 2002 2003 but metal it didn't seem to affect because the fans were still i think used to buying and, and yeah. very much into the culture it but then by that 05 06 you started to see that decline and it was kind of as that was declining, you still didn't have the the streaming to kind of replace that. So, right. so that was kind of that from like 06 to like 2010, 2011 was kind of a real dip. And, yeah. and, and that's know. that's when a lot of those companies just kind of went away, you know, because record labels were like, no, we're not giving you X amount of tens of thousands of dollars a month plus 100,000 samplers plus 100,000 stickers. Like they were just like, yeah. no, we're not yeah. going to we're not going to do that. Anymore. Yeah. And it was, I guess, also, too, there was just people were moving away from physical in general and, for everything right and that became that became a big thing too i feel like they went so like knee-jerk extreme you know and then they tried to do things like download cards but you know it was just not didn't have the same kind of vibe to it you know yeah. well people were i mean it, you just look at smartphones in general and just people want kind of one step yeah that right was exactly it, whereas like i get the card they have to look at the thing and right. then and then you have to the... go to this one website and then yeah. put in this code and then activate the code and make sure your email is confirmed it was it was too many steps for people yeah. and people were just kind of like yeah whatever yeah but i mean you i i totally get it You're, you sometimes you just have to try shit out and and try and keep keep up with the times but when you got to century media mm -hmm. were they because it it seemed like your role as being involved in marketing was expanding. Um, right. But what was what was your main role? I, I was the marketing manager, so it was kind of this amorphous, uh, yeah. you know, like you're in charge of marketing. That that's yeah. kind of like, oh, you're in charge of stuff. You're like, um, okay, what yeah. kind of stuff? So what I did when I got there because it seemed like things were so kind of ridiculous the way they were run. I was just like, you know, like there was one girl there who was doing all of tour coordinating and street team. And I'm like, I've had those two jobs and, and tour publicity. Well, keep in mind, much smaller company, but they were, that era, era was when they were growing. It was yes, when absolutely. Shadows Fall was taken yep, off and, and Lacuna, Lacuna Coil, Coil exactly. we were coming you guys, up. Exactly, that was, know. and that's kind of like when I got there, it was, but I think that Century Media in its own way, um, sort of didn't know how to handle that success all that well like mm -hmm. they they were just you know they were still trying to run things on a on a small scale while becoming big scale and and you have to have kind of the flexibility to understand when you're transitioning in a way yeah and i felt like they didn't really quite get that like they still wanted to be super indie but when you had bands like shadows fall and, and lacuna coil going going gold you know doing whatever selling a lot of records yeah you know um I, I just feel like they they just didn't really know they were just and so yeah they, well you know can I can I just give you my kind of sure, take on please. that I think a lot of it has to do with they were always a label that would essentially get a lot of everything yes right so they would it wasn't like oh Century Media is gonna have 
12 or 15 records out this year. It's like, no, there's going to be 50 records. When I when I started there, they gave me their release schedule and it was 96 records. And I remember we were having meetings at Roadrunner, like dropping hours down from like 16 to 12 or something like that. I'm like, yeah. I'm like how do you promote and market 96 records well, in a, a lot year? Of it, well, th- well, but a lot of it, you know, was so niche, right? It's right. like, well, if I have, you know, let's, let's say, I'm not even going to say nine, let's say it's 50 records, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if... 40 of those only you know sell 5000 records right, right? It, it, and then my top 10 are the ones that are really moving like these kind of bulk units in a way it kind of divides your your methodology because right. it's because it's like okay I'm going to put the bare minimum in in, in these because they're they were smaller bands right, right. they're maybe they're not touring a lot maybe it's just it's like some weird power metal band right. from like you know yeah, ontario or right, bavaria or yeah something like it was, that, you know? and but when you put all that together it's actually a lot of money right you know when you actually I, I always looked at it like it was a lot like feudalism you know like you had the kind of the peasant bands and then you had like the lord bands and the peasant <laughs> bands had to build up these lord bands but then eventually the peasant bands were like uh hey what about us yeah. and they started revolting you know and that became when that started becoming very apparent to a lot of bands i think that's when when century media really had to yeah. sort of figure out like what how do we how do we deal with this yeah but it's also you know? bigger right so if you, if you go the other way right and you say hey we're gonna sign less bands but we're gonna the fewer bands we're gonna put more into, but then it's also a bigger gamble, right? right. So, if, so if you put all this money into X band and they don't sell a hundred thousand records, right? Then all of a sudden it's like then it's a huge loss. Yeah, and and so I think that is probably from a company standpoint just a philosophical difference. Right. And I think they and listen they they continued even after we left you know left label with Suicide Silence and absolutely I mean, in this moment and you know the band the the, the label definitely continue to do well but i saw because we basically were done with the label in 2010 or 2009 you know that's when that shift was happening where right. you know like you know i had steve joe on the show and you know he would he would basically tell me that they went because like i said all that the physical was going away and and all that that revenue was there and streaming hadn't come back and he, he was like yeah he's like basically all we're doing is like these baby band deals where it's like we're just signing a band for five grand right and like they pay for their own record we don't give them any tours we don't do anything and it's just like and that's the if we sign 10 of those two of them are kind of bound to like exceed those expectations and kind of make some money but it's it's a uh it's it is cynical but it does there is some logic there business wise to what was going on at the time right i always looked at it like it was it was very precarious it's like it's like trying to stack boxes that are different shapes and sizes you know it's like eventually one box is going to be too much of a load-bearing structure and if you remove that box then everything else has an opportunity to kind of fall kind of like the way i play jenga (laughs) (laughs) you know it's kind of like infamous jenga Jenga battles that, that, that we have um so the, the you know the, when we really got to know each other mm-hmm. and this was you know I'm I'm very kind of nostalgic for this time because you know back in the day going into the the central media office at this time when he was growing it was just you know I knew all the people and everyone you know and I know not everyone there probably liked right. the band but for the most part there was just a lot of enthusiasm and people were passionate. Yes. about the artists absolutely that were on, that were on the label and you could feel that right um, for sure and so it was it was a really exciting time and and you know you were the you know person that that was the architect behind getting these when we did Ozfest 
we had these bus wraps with the Aliens yeah. versus Predator. We had one and Lacuna Coil, even though we had a better bus than Lacuna Coil, which was like, <laughs> I don't know how they were selling all the records. Somehow we got the nicer bus. But um, so funny, yeah. how, how did all that come together? So, um, you know, even though, you know, my experience at Streetwise wasn't awesome, uh, what it taught me was like, it taught me something where I was like, okay, like, how do I get somebody else to pay for my stuff? You know, and that's when I started thinking about things like sponsorships and whatnot. And then when it was announced that you guys and Lacuna were going out on OzFest and I saw just how insanely expensive it was, you know, 90 grand just to buy onto the second stage and, you know, second stage bands don't get paid and all these kinds of, and yeah. I was like, dude, like, okay, like we're still Century Media, like we're not Roadrunner, we're not Island Def Jam, we don't have this massive marketing budget behind us. I was like, we've got to shave some money off of this budget. And so I came up with the idea of, you know what, movies, you know, mo like horror movies and action movies are kind of geared a little bit towards metalheads. Yeah. And so what I did was I found out which movies were coming out that summer and I wrote a I wrote proposals to every movie studio. Um, I mean, God, everybody, Sony and Columbia and, and Paramount and everybody. And, and suddenly uh, 20th Century Fox was like, yeah, okay, cool. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Because I'd gotten no so many So how times. much did you ask him for? Um, $96,000. And that's for both or just for each one? That was for both buses. Yeah. Um, and then I, I also put in the agreement that um, we would make mini DVD samplers, which were kind of a new thing. Um, so that's where we put the tr the trailer and then a video from uh, God forbid and Lacuna Coil on there. And we handed that out at Comic-Con. We handed it out all over the country, you know, on tour and and you know that i you know it's funny it's like even though i have no real evidence on this the i remember they they estimated the the what the movie was going to do and it came out to like 10 million dollars more and i was fairly confident that we had a big part yeah. to play in that well just i mean here's the thing i i'm actually really amazed that more companies don't do this because i mean yeah it's just a billboard that moves right now isn't that theoretically i mean you have a certain billboard that's in that's static, right? Of course, right. And by the way, those aren't fucking cheap either, right? Put a fucking billboard up in like Times yeah. Square. How yeah, much is exactly, that? Exactly, right. Hundreds of thousands. Exactly. Of so, in the grand scheme, this is a billboard that ran for ten weeks. Yep. Right. So, not only do you have the people at, you know, you have ten, you know, ten, fifteen thousand people at the show, twenty thousand people. So having some contact, but it's also traveling around the country during the so that was that was part of my sales pitch was it's you know these buses are driving around the high the 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 highest drive time of the year so lots of people are out with their families and they're going to see this thing uh, even if the bus has a flat tire then it's literally just a billboard yeah secondly or, or uh, thirdly it was because um, one of the companies was like well why wouldn't we do that with Ozzy and I was like because Ozzy's bus nobody gets to see. Whereas the second stage buses, the fans were there, yeah. the bands were all hanging out, they were in perfect view of everybody. And not like that, not for nothing, Ozzy actually probably flies <laughs> to most of the shows. True, true. But that was that was their thing, was like, why not a main stage band? It was basically their kind of thing. Like, why wouldn't we go with a bigger yeah, band? Yeah, they're hidden. The, the main stage. That's exactly the, it. I'm like, nobody's going to see those buses. And not only that, you know, a lot of these buses travel um, during the night. 
you know, so people aren't going to see it. But the the second stage bands yeah. are doing off fest dates. Yeah. They're playing. You know, you. Uh, I know. Lacuna and we Coral, have to be there early. You guys have to be there early. Um, and they're and like Lacuna Coral would play like a you know an acoustic WAAF show. So it's like suddenly your tour bus is going through Boston everywhere. Yeah. You know, so I think that's why 20th Century Fox really saw the the benefit of it, and I think a hundred thousand dollars really wasn't. Yeah. Uh, huge for them. I mean, what's their right. marketing budget for a movie like that? Right for for Alien vs Predator, yeah, at least a couple, you know, at least a million dollars, I would think. But well, way more than that. you know, right? It's you know, in, usually usually with those big budget movies, the marketing budget is just as much as the actual production budget, right? And that's kind of it. So that's why I think that you know, I was that's why I was like to ask for a hundred thousand dollars. That movie was a hit, right? It was. It did really well. Yeah. It did really well in spite of people not liking it. But I mean, it, I like it. it. I love that movie. But it did. It's it way did, better than the second one. Yeah, that's for sure. But it's like, but it did. It did pretty well, you know. And and Fox was stoked about it. And but I mean, they didn't know anything about Century Media. They didn't know anything about God forbid a Lacuna Coil. They just yeah. looked at it and they went, "This looks like a good idea." And I went, "Yeah, it is a good idea." And like I said, when they said yes i was blown away i still have a i have a picture of the check still yeah. <laughs> i keep that with i keep that in my office so in 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 a way did that kind of almost set kind of a tough precedent because now all of a sudden every band is like get us that thing get us you know the labels like how come he you know well, what i'm saying you know to be honest with you and i guess this is kind of where some shit talking is going to happen um you know century media when i got quote unquote let go century media was basically like when i was like they said i didn't do anything the entire year that i worked there and i'm like what are you talking like i got we got our band's endorsements we did the alien versus predator thing and they went yeah well that was just one thing we expected miracles every day and i'm like okay i don't know how to how to do that like comedy like a comedy it it was it was ridiculous it was it was so ridiculous just to get you know to get let go for you know being told like yeah and and i just won employee of the month like the (laughs) The month before it was so ridiculous but i think they were so hell-bent on just getting rid of me mm-hmm. that at that point whatever accomplishments i had just didn't really matter yeah you know and that was that was also the bummer because i was like dude like i'm i come here every day busting my ass trying to help figure out how to help all of these bands from you know from the big bands like shadows and and you guys and lacuna to like watch them die and you know nevermore or whatever you know we were trying to help everybody out and on top of that we had you know nuclear blast we had uh what was it um uh, liquor and poker we had uh um what was that other one um uh, like olympic you know abacus that was yeah, the one yeah. you know we had abacus so we had all of these smaller labels under us so it was kind of like there's so much to do but you know and that's why like i said you know you come in every day try to you know bust your ass and then somebody's like you know well oh that's all you did and it's like wait what like who else here has done anything like this so <laughs> you know? well but this is an interesting time because that's essentially where marketing as kind of a you know umbrella term really evolves into digital marketing yes absolutely um, which is kind of the the main thing and i'm and i'll be honest i mean i started in the industry at in a time where there was a real division between what the band did and what the label did and there was a real kind of um you know dependence i think on bands at least at least our kind of band you know where we didn't i don't know we just didn't think about these things right. you know outside you know to us you know marketing and promotion was like oh we go hand out flyers to our show we go you know try and get on the local radio station um and we and it was always like oh well you sign a record deal and then they do all that right that and was then that you, was always the fallacy was, yeah was, was and you know and then as things and, I, and as things kind of 
one of the downslide for for God forbid, it was kind of like right when social media was was coming up, and right. we were we were kind of behind the ball on MySpace. We were kind of behind the ball on Facebook. We were never, you know, because we just had the wrong mentality. And then in those kind of intervening years, I was like, oh yeah, like if if you want to have any success launching anything anything new, you have to be a part of your whole marketing strategy. But it's also very kind of mercurial. Like I'm always like. What is marketing? What right. is what do you do? What are actually the, the 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 things? So when you were kind of done with Century Media, is this when you started the yeah, well, your, your own company? No, no. I well, I, I was starting. I had always wanted to do War Machine as a street marketing company. That was always my big goal. Um, but then, as I was in the middle of sort of creating it, uh, Warner Brothers hired me, mm-hmm. and that was literally like the worst four or five months Did of my you, life. Is that still in LA? Yeah, yeah, I was in Burbank, um, and it was just, it was horrible. It was just a terrible situation, but after that, I sort of burnt out on the music industry entirely. Yeah. I was just over it. I, I was over it. I just didn't want to, um, I just, I, I felt like there was something else out there, and so and did, I, And do, do you have, like, the uh, really domineering, judgmental Indian parents who are just like, yes. you're, you're a disappointment. Yes, yes. That's why it was really funny. Some lady at, at Costco claimed that I stole her parking spot and she was like, your mother's going to be so disappointed in you. I was like, you're so late on this. You're getting lying. You're like, you're like, I wish I could argue with you. Right, right. <laughs> By the way, she's already disappointed. Yeah, right. I'm like, you're way too late on this lady. Um, yeah, they, you know, they obviously, you know, they, they have that old school mentality. Did and they, what do they want you to do? They want me to be a doctor, just like are, you know. Are they doctors? No, not in the least. Oh, you sons of bitches! You can't be telling me to be a doctor. You ain't yeah, a doctor. Yeah, that's exactly it. I was, you know, they, they basically wanted to have kids so that we could be their geriatric nurses. Is the way I look at it. Hey, listen, not a bad strategy. No, I guess you know, except for when you're you're me, my brother, and my sister, who are all just I always say that we're just like three brown middle fingers walking around. Jesus. But uh, but that's but that yeah, they were you know they always were like you know this this metal thing is just you know why are you wasting your time with it? But I mean, for a long time, I was making. I was doing really good with it and it was it was really great and then when things started to fall apart I was just kind of you know jumping around from here to there um, and then I started War Machine but it what I realized kind of like what you were saying about God forbid sort of you know thinking that you know the record label is going to take care of stuff you know I realized like how much Roadrunner gave me in the way of being able to do my street team easily and, and properly, yeah, just I mean, even just our our back end, our our, our our interface and our back end and everything was so comprehensive, and I just I was like, how is one person supposed to do all of this? And so I started it, but then um, around 2008 was when I really was like, all right, cool, I'm going in in on it, and that's when the recession hit, and everyone was like, we don't need a street team, we just I don't need a street team. I just need business cards, you know, and I don't need your team to hand them out. And so that's when I was kind of like, okay, the street team thing doesn't seem to be working. Um, let me, let me kind of flip the switch a little bit. And, and that's when I started looking into making merch. Mm-hmm. And so then I started War Machine Marketing as, as sort of a promotional item company. So instead of handing out the merch, I was like, why not? Instead of handing out the swag, why not make the swag, mm-hmm. you know? And that way I can still you know, feel a part of things, but also be, um, I don't know, just kind of be on the, on the, on the outside of it. So I wasn't working at a record label. I was just working with a record label, Mm -hmm. you know? So I wasn't tied into their, into their politics. I wasn't tied into their, their drama or anything like that. You know, it's like, you need keychains. I'll make your keychains and boom, there you go. Whether, if they wanted to take the keychains and throw them in a dumpster, that was entirely up to them, but it wasn't up to me to determine the success of that project 
based on the items I was making, you know? And that's what I kind of liked about it. I was like, cool, because then I also don't have to feel tied in. So I could work with the video game industry. I could work with the movie industry. I could, you know, if a church wanted something, I could make something for a church. Like it wouldn't, you know, it, it didn't hold me back. If anything, the, the, the possibilities were so limitless. Mm -hmm. And so I started War Machine Marketing with a, uh, a now ex-friend of mine um, who was, who, who did do all of that. And she made a ton of money, but she ended up kind of pissing it all away. And so then I, when I started with her, she had all the contacts. Mm -hmm. I had music industry contacts, but she knew how to, you know, quote out and, and do invoicing and all these things that I really didn't know. And so we were, we worked together for about two years and then I fired her cause she was stealing money. And then I realized I was like, okay, like now it's up to me. So I became this one man army and I've just been doing that ever since i mean is it cooler just being your own boss and kind of that whole independent thing or is it just or is, there's also that opposite end of just like hey if i don't hold it down i'm fucked <laughs> both uh, both because it is great to be your own boss but at the same time um you know if somebody needs something for an event and it's got that date on it you know you can't miss that event like you have to figure out how you're gonna get this merch to them so you know we've had situations like that where uh, stuff was stuck on a boat and you know on its way from china or or something like that i mean is that where you get most of the stuff made uh, I get a lot of stuff from overseas. Um, it's, to be perfectly honest, it's easier. I mean, yes, it's le it's less expensive, of course, but it's actually easier. And then you start to realize, as I started to do this company more and more, I started to realize that, you know, things that say that they're made in the USA, you know, a lot of times all the, you know, you can't do all of the same kind of processes in America just because of EPA standards and stuff like that. And in China, they can, they don't care, you know? So then when you say it's made in the USA, it's like, yeah, but all the items came from China. You just put your name on so it. So you're saying those custom action figures are made out of pure lead. Yes, yes. <laughs> lead toothpaste. Um, but that's kind of it. It's like it became, you know, you start to realize that like kind of everything comes from there. And yeah. if you try to do something that's in America, yeah, you get charged. And, and we learned ass. that in the, in the pandemic, right? We realized all the ventilators and masks were made in China. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of it. And everyone was like, well, I want ones that are made in the U.S. And I'm like, then you're going to be paying so friggin much more for it, you know, and that's that that's also the weird balance of the whole thing. But I mean, yeah, it's like if I can if I can get something made in the US and everything, like, you know, a lot of my factories already have the product, so then they print it in the US, which makes life easier. Mm. You know, but for certain things like custom items and whatnot, yeah, you gotta you gotta go overseas, you know, and you gotta try to find the most and that's a hard thing too in, in this industry is like finding the right place to do it. Cause yeah, if a Chinese factory suddenly just goes under you're, and you're just shit out of luck, you know, then you gotta you gotta recover quickly. So who are you you know, because like I said, you, so you still have the marketing moniker, right? But it's but now it's more like marketing in terms of making promo items for other companies and entities to kind of utilize for their right. kind of ventures. Right. So we're actually going to change the the name sort of to War Machine uh, Custom Merchandising. Yeah. Um, and just have marketing as kind of a, an over, yeah. you know, kind of just an umbrella sort yeah, well, of situation. Well, that's, I, well, I was thinking about that because I was like, I was like, I'm wondering if, if maybe it does send almost the wrong kind of yeah, message in terms right. of what, even though that's your background. Right. And that's how it started. Right. It's it's kind of evolved. I, I think something because uh, when I first started, I didn't really, you know, I was thinking like War Machine promo and all that, but then we took off so fast. 
we took off so fast and so furious that I just trying to change the name was just like. Well, then Marvel never came at you. Uh, no, no. <laughs> okay, nor, nor did a lot of. Well, I mean, it, the name comes from a Kiss song, so. Yeah. But that was kind of it, though. Was that it was. Um, you know, we just we just went so fast and furious into it that changing the name just became like a, a secondary, like just that goes on the back burner. But now with the you know with the time we have off now for this with this pandemic and everything, and and me taking a, a good step back from it all and kind of looking at it from a, a bird's eye view, um, you know, I've realized that you know a lot of I'm sure we've been passed up several times for I for projects just because people are like, well, I don't need marketing. Yeah. But then on the flip side of it, because I've done street marketing and that was kind of how I uh, where I cut my teeth. Um, you know, I get people who are like, hey, bro, I need a street team. And I'm like, yeah, that's not what I do. And they're like, but marketing. And I'm like, yeah. So is that, is street teams, are they just done? Is it gone? You know, it is, but I, I think there's absolutely a place for it. It just has to be, it, you know, before it was a lot like trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Like you might get it, but you're going to do a lot of damage. But, along it, the but way. is it just like to a certain degree, like real world spamming? Kind of. <laughs> Only if it's not streamlined. Yeah. You know, that's kind of it. Like, what I would tell my street teamers is, if you see more than four street teamers at a concert, don't promote there. Yeah. Because then all you're doing is just adding to the fact that people are going to take the they're, stuff that we annoyed. have. And yeah. Like, we had people who were trying to go through alternate exits so they didn't have to deal with street teamers. Yeah. Because they were just so sick of it. And every garbage around the, the venue is just flyers and stickers and samplers. And just it just got to be... Uh, so obscenely grotesque the way it all worked out i remember seeing somebody walk out of um i think it was new england metal fest maybe no some, some festival and i remember seeing somebody walk out and they had like they had to like hold their hands together like they were holding a, a stack of books but it was all just promotional items and yeah. mark oh no you know what it was at warp tour and i was just like yeah like, how is that enjoyable for anybody you know, and, and also it got to the point where I think for God forbid we might have done this too. I did we do the like the two song sampler? Well, we did the one, like I said, the, it was a determination. Right. It was, uh, it was, it was Broken Promise and Go Your Own Way and then Candiria. Right. It was two of the songs from 300% Density. Right, right. So, but my, that was like, but I, I feel like that was a thing where at least at that time, like Candiria had a name. Right. So people, we're like, oh, it's fucking Candiria. And then us, maybe they'd heard it, but it was, and it was just like I said, it was real simple. And, it, and I guess at that time, it didn't seem like there was too much of it. Yeah. Like, right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was, it was, it was ahead of the curve, but, um, but it seemed to be really effective. And then, and then after that, it seemed, like I said, you, I, I now I remember the mini disc thing. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what, what else. Oh, I remember what we did. We, we, we released a, the Better Days EP. Before Gone Forever, but it wasn't a giveaway. Though. No, it wasn't a. It wasn't. A um, but I remember those always like little. You know, Accenture like Media was great with doing compilations. Yeah, absolutely. And things like that. And um, like we didn't get on the first Headbangers Ball uh, compilation, but we got on the second one. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I feel like there was always, and, the, and then actually on Constitution, then we we were on one of the Hot Topic uh, right. samples sample CDs. So. No, I, I do, you know, and, and now it's like everything is pretty much just playlists. Yeah, it's just playlists. You know, playlists and kind of, okay, if I'm listening to this band radio algorithm, then if you're lucky, your song will kind of come right. up in there. And I, and I think so much today is probably more um, word of mouth than ever. Yeah, like, oh, so this too. person posts. It's like me, like I've really done it at a 10 times 
am going to check something out because someone else is like, yo, you should check out this band. Right. And I still think that's kind of the best endorsement because there's, we just, I feel like I have less time for right. everything. Like I have so many articles I want to read and so many books I want to read and, right. oh, I got to listen to this podcast and watch this documentary right. like that. You're so kind of bogged down. You right. Know? That's exactly it. But back then also, it's like we were doing like these two song samplers, kind of like your, the, the, the Candiria one with you guys. And I was just like, okay, but how often is somebody going to listen to two songs over and over and over again? So I started kind of going, you know what, we need to, if we're going to do this, like we need to put like three bands on with two songs each yeah. you know because then at least people can listen to that cd again and again but i was just like this whole two song thing is just dumb like nobody's gonna sit there and be like play those two songs again and again and again you know like nobody's doing that and i felt like we lost people on on stuff like that you know or like rather that we wasted a lot of money on stuff like that you know it's like but if you give people but you also couldn't do the opposite too. You couldn't give them like a 17 song sampler mm -hmm. because then nobody gets to track 17, you know? And that's how, how I felt about, about a lot of that stuff. So I tried to keep everything to like, you know, let's just have like six to seven songs. Let's kind of make it a little bit longer than an EP, but with three bands so that you can kind of get a gist of what each band is about, as opposed to like, here's the song from I Hate God, and then here's Luke and Coil, and then here's God Forbid, and then, you know, it's like, and then by the time, you know, you're at track 18, and it's like, oh, yeah, track 18 is this band. You so, know, so gonna care. if anyone's listening to this, what kind of companies or individuals should reach out to you for the stuff you're doing now okay um i mean just anybody who needs merch anybody who needs merch that's printed i mean and we're talking everything from you know your basic stuff like stickers and business cards and whatnot all the way to i mean we we did a straight jacket from hotly crew you know that had their <laughs> logo and you know on it so it's like i mean we do everything from embroidery to you know you name it. i mean we've done we do huge concert backdrops we do scrims so it's not even just merch that you can give out or sell you know if you need a drum head that's got your logo on it we'll do that you know yeah. we've done we've done huge concert backdrops for cypress hill we've done them for for king and bad religion and the murder Doll. i mean so many bands we've done all of this stuff for so it's kind of like anybody who needs you know i think don't so you and I mentioned the the custom action figure thing, but I think yeah. it's one of the coolest things oh, you you do, and and very unique because I don't I don't know know anyone else that, that that does it. So basically, he'll you know so I I don't know who you, who you use, but like if you say oh I, I want to get an action figure of my girlfriend or something, right. and give it to her for a birthday, they'll he has people that that, yeah. that do this. I, I I have a guy who who makes incredible custom action figures. They're three and three quarter inch, so standard like Star Wars GI Joe size. And they're fully, like, they have 10 to 14 points of articulated movement, removable weapons, removable accessories. We can do people as characters, or we can do people just on a regular day. If you just want a dock figure with you with headphones on and stuff, like, <laughs> I can, we can do that, you know. Um, I have a couple of, of myself, you know, my, I've got a couple of my wife made. She loves Freddy Krueger, so we did her as Freddy Krueger, and it came it's out looking bad. awesome. It's pretty badass. Yeah, and so it's really cool. We got written up in Forbes for it, which was dope. You know, so it's it's a really cool thing, and there's no 3D printing. Everybody thinks it's 3D printed. There's no 3D printing whatsoever. Everything's hand done, hand painted, and they just look and they feel so legit. Like it feels like you literally just bought this action figure at a and, store. And you also, you're kind of a trader, kind of in the just memorabilia world, yeah. right? So, do, can people find where do people like if they want to kind of kind of buy all this he has toys and fucking all this, this stuff like yeah i mean everything's on warmachinemarketing.com so even the stuff that you're like all the third 
party stuff that you're selling and things like that? Like, um, no, no, no. Because that, that stuff I usually just kind of keep for eBay and whatnot. Okay. You know, my, my store on, on eBay is called The Inferno Room. Right. So if you ever Check it out. Look, he has so much crazy, cool, rare stuff. I, you know. I, fi- I keep finding weirder stuff, too. I'm just like, when the hell did I get this? Okay, cool. Let's let's see what happens with that. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's kind of it. Everything is just off of War Machine Marketing. You can search everything, you know, and then, you know, if people have questions about specific stuff or you know if they're like hey can you make this and you send me a picture of it you know chances are we can but that's what we like to do we just like to help people you know after doing all the street team stuff and and especially during the glut of street teaming i really saw how much money people were wasting yeah you know especially when i was at roadrunner you know i we, we were getting like glitter stickers and silver shiny vod stickers and i i mean even now i'm like dude that stuff is expensive like we were handing this stuff out we were just giving these to people are you kidding me so it made me realize just how much of our budgets of my budgets we were wasting on on these ridiculous things that we didn't need yeah um so that's one of the things that i like to do for my clients is really just help them understand like you know not how to not spend too much money yeah you know i mean i want business of course but like i also don't want people to be like well this is the last 500 dollars i have well then we got to maximize that as best we can you know, so that's what I try to do is really kind of just help my my customers along and, you know, show them, you know, because if they come to me and they're like, I want this black shirt. I'm like, OK, well, if you want to pay three dollars a shirt or something, something ludicrous like that, then we have to, you know, kind of redo how you're thinking about this, you know, or maybe instead of doing shirts, you do 500, you know, whatever, you know, foam koozies or something like that, you know. So this way we can help them maximize what they're doing so that they can actually make a decent profit, especially as you know, like merch is king, you know, on the road, you know, like that's pretty much how people are getting paid. And during this pandemic right now, you know, uh, you know, with people not being on the road, you know, I'm trying to help people come up with items that, you know, are a little left center, you know, so that, you know, they can have at least a little bit more um, diversity in what they carry on their site. And we deal with over 2 million items. So it's like, there's a lot of stuff out there that people don't even realize that they can put their logo on. And I'm like, yeah, we can do it on this. We can do this, you know, so that way people can come to me as a resource, you know, which Mm -hmm. I don't mind either. You know, if you got questions, like that's, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to help, you know, figure out those answers and get things done properly, you know, as opposed to like, you know, if you go to certain sites, you know, you're like Vistaprint or something like that. It's like, you're kind of just a number to them, you yeah. know? And and to me, I can't have a name like War Machine Marketing without being like, I have to stand by that name. You know, I can't just be like, oh shit, that project went wrong. Okay, now we're, you know, thepromoguy.com. You know, like I can't do that. I have to stand by my name. You know, integrity is, is everything for me. So I want to make sure that my clients get the very best and they know that they have somebody who actually cares about their project. You know, and I don't care if it's a church, I don't care if it's American Heart Association, a rap rap group, a you know, country band, like whatever. I've done stuff with the Dixie Chicks. I really it you know, my job is just They're to now make the, chicks. the chicks, sorry. We're, by the way, stupid change. Just keep it Dixie Chicks, all right? Yeah, seriously. You know what I'm saying? But that's but that's kind of what, what we do, you know. So I just want to help people out, you know, and help them save money and you know, get them the, the best things we can. That's all right, we brother. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to Dude, be on be on the you. show and and tell you know uh your story in the, in the in the industry because like i said this is stuff that i think people need to know and obviously the the industry is constantly evolving right and it's in flux but um i just you know anyone that's been involved in 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 my history 
in this in in my career i just i love bringing them here and, and just telling well, that story i man. appreciate it dude i love listening to all of all, all of all of our peers yeah. telling their stories too from like mark hunter and brock from 36 it's just like you know even though i was on one side of the 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 the, the, the fence you know to hear their perspective while i was doing all this stuff too you know it's just it's really cool kind of filling in a lot of missing pieces in my opinion that's the whole point yeah so it's awesome thank you dude appreciate hey, it hell yeah
So that was a cover song of Judith by a perfect circle. And it features Ravi from Vegas nerve. He, his new stage name goes by Sterling R Jackson, but you know, if you weren't, you know, that's what we used to call him Sterling now. Okay. Hook it up. Anyway, <laughs> on doing some beautiful vocals, Maytal Cohen, the amazing drummer who is mostly known for being very famous on the YouTubes. And then Mark Valalunga, the guitar player from Nothing More, and Aaron Bruch from bass player from Breaking Benjamin. And you know, we did that. It's funny, it's it's we put it on Maytal's YouTube because she has a massive YouTube. And she put collab, C-O-Lab. <laughs> and then Octane on Sirius like picked it up and started playing it. And they played it so much that it actually hit the active rock radio charts, which is hilarious. It was like number 50 something. Uh, so I, I, I got to thinking about it. I was like, you know, what, let's, but it was not available to stream anywhere outside of YouTube. So I was like, you know, what, let's like put it out officially because a lot of people asked me about it. And I think we're going to put it out under the Vegas Nerve name because, you know, I'm going to start working on some new Vegas Nerve tunes. And I think it's a good way to kind of reintroduce the band to some people. It features. Sterling and myself, and also I think Aaron from Breaking Ben is going to play on some new Vegas Nerve song. So if you hadn't heard it, there you go. It's people seem to really like it, and it was really fun. Mark, Mark really set that off because he started. He was like, "Hey Doc," he's like, "You know, I'm going to try some things." You know, and he put he put some spins on some stuff, and you know, he set the bar really high. And he was like, "I did my guitar parts, you know, spending all day." And he's like, "Yeah, Doc's pretty good." You know, I got some notes though. You know, he had he had me go back. And then still, he's like, yeah, it was a little, you know, could be a little better. And I was like, okay, I suck. You're great. But, um, you know, he ain't playing around. You know, it's not a game. Well, Mark, you better get your shit right. All right. But so talented, so nice, such, such a wonderful person. That was really fun. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with my man, Ro. He's the man, old friend, wealth of knowledge. You know, it's old school. It's fun stuff. I have some... Great shows. Oh, yeah. And, you know, check out his stuff. WarMachineMarketing.com. But anyway, I have some great shows coming up. I got some, getting some heavyweights on the shows, guys. You know, sometimes I have these, you know, a few weeks I noticed, like last week's been a lot of industry people. And, you know, a lot of those shows, they don't do quite as well because it's not famous, you know, big name people. And I realize, and I, I like doing that stuff. You know, like last week with Dale, I love that shit, you know, talking about getting nitty gritty race. You know, or I had Carl from Ferret and we're talking about the scene and all that. I love that stuff. But you guys, you kind of want, you know, you want some some name people, you know. So I got to, you know, I sometimes I realize I got to I gotta go get the big dogs. You know, I got to go in the Rolodex. I still have a Rolodex, all right? And I just roll through it, flick, flick here. Can you hear that? That's the Rolodex. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I got some big, big names coming up 
very excited for this. So some of them are big, big to me. I don't know if they're big to you, but they're very accomplished people. So that's what I'm going to be doing. We focus on some big, big heads and get, get some, get some list, listenership over here. Uh, anyway, I also want to thank everyone who's been picking up stuff from the merch store on DocCoil.net. Got a box full of shirts here. You know what? The box ain't full anymore. Box is running low. All right. Because y'all been buying stuff. Or maybe it's not you guys. Maybe it's other people. But if you do listen, thank you for buying the shirts. I also have the DocCoil Custom Dunlop guitar pick set with a very lovely pick called the DocCoil Collection. Pick one up for your children. You know, I know it's a recession. But, you know, I mean, do you want to eat or have a DocCoil pick collection? Think about it. Right? You know, you might not be able to eat that, but you will own it. And then you will feel that you can feel that hunger with satisfaction, you know, or, you know, I think so. Where you can like your hunger, like, oh, you can like sample that and turn that into hip hop. So I'm like, oh, 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 you know, see, then I'm, I'm making you money. See, when that hits SoundCloud, boom, you're like, thank you, Doc Coil, for making me hungry. That's absurd. I don't know why you guys listen to me. I really don't. Actually, whoever's listening to this long, whoever makes it to the end, I just feel like it, it's it's a very few. It's like the real deal, motherfuckers, right? Anyway, I really I really don't have anything else. Oh, NBA playoffs started today. Shit was the bomb. I only caught about you know half the games, but it's great. I love it. I'm into it. I'm rooting for the Trailblazers, Mellow, because the Knicks aren't in it, in it, so I have to root for my Knicks players that are with different teams. Okay. Well, I love you guys. Yeah, there's no sponsor today, but the, all my next, my next features are all sold out with sponsors. So if you want to sponsor the show, it might be like a month at least before you can get on. But hit me up, you know, reserve that spot because they're they're going quick. The X-Men podcast at gmail.com. Send me a message. We'll get at you. Peace. Mama out. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.